What a beautiful day, campers! Just a few quick announcements. First, we have some special guests visiting us today. Please make your way over to the gazebo and say hello to the children of the new dawn. And make sure you pick up a pamphlet while you're there. They're into some really interesting stuff. Next, all art classes are postponed because, well, we can't find the teacher anywhere. <laughs> it's weird how people keep going missing. Anywho, tonight's mess hall dinner is mac and cheese. I know it's a favorite, so I'll see you cheddar goblins there a little later on. <laughs> Except for maybe Mandy. Seriously, she just went out for colored pencils uh, two days ago and <laughs> nobody's seen her since. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Bunk 237. Um, I am very excited for this episode, and I am one of your hosts, Robin. And I'm Tuyet, the other host. <laughs> Nailed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and today's guest is Justin Lascelles, uh, the world's foremost researcher on the paranormal entity known as Axlasher. Hey, Justin. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting for me. I can't believe that anyone wants to hear about our research. Thank you. <laughs> it's Thank a whole you for being here. It's a whole episode <laughs> of that. But first, that's right. <laughs> We'll spend a little time talking about Mandy, 2018 movie starring Nicolas Cage in all his glory. It is uh, directed by uh, Panos Cosmatos. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Andrea Riseborough co-stars. Uh, Jeremiah, the cult leader, played wonderfully by Linus Roche. Ro- Roche? I don't know how you say it. A lot, um, of, a lot of names. <laughs> a lot of names. <laughs> um, and I have to say, I did not know too much about Mandy going in, except for that it was supposed to be crazy. And I was a little concerned when we chose it for the podcast because I thought that perhaps it would be like way too out there and way too crazy for me to even like get, you know. But it really is sort of a simple classic tale (laughs) of boy meets girl, boy and girl live happily in the woods for some time girl accidentally catches the attention of deranged cult leader (laughs) cult (laughs) kidnaps boy and girl with the help of a lsd ridden demonic (laughs) biker gang (laughs) Um, cult murders girl and boy goes on a wild revenge spree and that's pretty much Classic, classic classic tale. (laughs) I think that's actually what was. I think that was actually what was written in the script is just that exact just uh, that layout that (laughs) you just did, and then they just shot around that. (laughs) But even (laughs) (laughs) even though it's like a fairly simple story, there is a lot going on that we have to discuss tonally, visually, everything. So my first question for you guys is if you had to describe this movie to someone, what would you say? How would you characterize it? I would say 100% my shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, love it. It's like metal, fantasy, drugs, specifically LSD, um, <laughs> like, uh, Nicolas Cage, like incredible, like super saturated colors, cults. Like, mm-hmm. um, love a cult. Love, love cults. Love a cult. Hope to be in one or lead one at some point, <laughs> to be honest with you. I always wonder, it's like, that seems hard, but real cool. I think I'd be a great 
follow. It seems hard to lead a cult. <laughs> yeah, right? I, mean, I don't know. Seems like it is a great time to lead a cult. Onto your side, right? <laughs> I think that part of that is figuring out who the right person is, right? Like if you can if you can find the right person that buys your specific line of bullshit, you are in. Like right. you don't have to work further than that. I think it's more about selection than it is about convincing a ton of people. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my take on it. That's very true. I mean, the cult in this movie had like what? Six members? <laughs> yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Was Jeremiah, would you guys have followed Jeremiah Sand? God, no. Hell no. Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. He was fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I've thought about what kind of cult I would join. And I think that, so are you guys familiar with Om Shinrikyo, which is a, a Japanese cult that you may be familiar with their sarin attacks that they pulled off on the Japanese subway in the nineties. Vaguely. Tell us more. Yeah. (laughs) So Om Shinrikyo was led by uh, this very charismatic blind leader. Um, I'm spacing his name right now, so that's awful. But anyway, their whole thing is that they actually went after computer scientists, biologists, and like people that thought that they were smarter than the rest of the world and basically hit everyone in Japan at this time when like, there was a, a, a religious void. So like Shinto was falling to the wayside and like there was this period of experimentation of like, well, what about, what if Christianity? What if these other things? What if Buddhism? What if Shinto? And because of that, like kind of lack of a national religion or, or a lack of an agreement on one, he kind of came in and painted himself as this otherworldly leader. And he actually used things like manga and uh, like movies and all these different kinds, like every type of advertising or filmmaking you could think of or like artistic pursuit, he put out this idea that he was some sort of otherworldly savior for people, which ended up getting these very smart people, I don't know how, like maybe they read a cool manga and were like, that's it, that's what I want to be the dude who's, (laughs) you know, I want to follow the dude who's flying through space with all the cool lines behind him. But eventually they grew to the point where they were making deals with uh, Russia to buy attack helicopters and buying off politicians and, and almost, you know, running shit for a very long time until they pulled off these sarin attacks. And finally it was like, we got to break this up. We have to stop Om Shinrikyo. Wow, that's crazy. See, I think that's, that's what I'd go cool, for cool, is something though. where I'd <laughs> sit around with a bunch of computer scientists being like, yeah, we are smarter than everyone. Huh? Yeah, that's totally. Anyway, our God over here, <laughs> the blind man who makes us drink his bathwater. <laughs> Robin, what kind of cult would you be in? Probably worship like... An, a dog or an animal <laughs> before Ooh. any type of person, you know? That would be like, really cool. It just has to be like a really cute dog. And I'd be like, yeah, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> like, There's a lot have of Instagram accounts like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, next thing you know, Doug the Pug's ordering followers to carry out attacks. And we're like, okay, I guess this is the world we live in I mean, in now. look at his eyes. How could you say no? <laughs> As a cult leader, that's a good hook, too, because, like, you could say literally whatever you want and go, hey, it's not me. It's Doug the Pug. He's the one who's ordering this, and I'm just, you know, the bearer right. of his message. <laughs> right. And look at his face. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should talk about Jeremiah, though, because as far as cult leaders go, I would say he was, like, not the most effective. <laughs> 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 not the best at being the head that? of a cult. Yeah, because everyone died or because, like... He had a real, like, Charles Manson, failed musician, uh, vague Christianity thing going on, but, like, without, you know, he he got blinded by his own ego, 
you know, at <laughs> many points, <laughs> believed he was the chosen one for, like, no discernible reason. Yeah. And the fact that he had this, like, terrible hippie record and plays it after he kidnaps <laughs> her and, like, talks himself up in this grandiose way and he's naked and just, like, the, the big motions that he's making in his life and in this woman's life. And this woman who's about to die, probably, at that point, she doesn't know yet. But the fact that, like, he would make this big, grandiose musical debut to her, and that she would just laugh. She'd be like, this is your song? This is so embarrassing. <laughs> God, when she laughed, I just, like, it was so mean. But it was so good, because it was a bad song. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, and I mean, you could also, there's so many layers to that, at least kind of like visually from what I picked up, whereas Jeremiah himself to me feels like the utmost worst representation of a male ego that you could like just cranked up to 11 where yeah. the, every awful impulse of like inherent to a male ego of like every, you know, dominion is mine. Everything is mine. It's all here for me. Me, me, me. Listen to my music. Look at my dick. Like all those horrible things. And the way that that can be shattered and and broken by the laugh of a strong woman is like, that is such a powerful metaphor. And I love that, that she's like laughing at his dick, laughing at his music, laughing at the whole idea that he's leading these sleepy people that are all just kind of like along for the ride and just shatters it to the core and by laughing at him. Like, I, I still feel like that's such a powerful scene. Yeah, it's true. And <laughs> especially because he went into it saying, have you ever heard of the Carpenters? This is much better. <laughs> While she's wearing a Black Sabbath shirt. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> skip right over that, go into the B section. She was such an interesting character, and their, her and Nick Cage's relationship, I guess his, his character is Red, she's Mandy. So Red and Mandy's mm. relationship, it was very quietly developed in like the yeah. first hour of the movie yeah. you know they didn't like we didn't get a lot of their background except for like that weird story she told about her dad beating all the starling birds or whatever yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. but it felt to me once we got to the to the action and he was broken by her death and decided to go on a revenge mission it seemed really earned and like we we were like raring to go, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that although they didn't get too much into the backstory of the two of them, I mean, you could see that there was you could, you knew that there was a really a particularly strong bond with this couple, like living in the woods, um, and the way that like he reacts to like her artwork in the beginning and how like great yeah. you can see like in his eyes how much he loves her, um, and how they're both a little broken as people. And the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, and how they, uh, they've they kind of, like, come together and found this place where they both fit together and they both belong. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when she died, and especially, I think you can, it's so evident um, after she dies and after, uh, I can't not call him Nicholas Cage. <laughs> I know. <laughs> after, after he, like, gets free and then it, like, he's in the bathroom and, like, the, like all the, the colors change in the movie and he's, like, slamming the vodka and pouring it over himself and he's just yelling, like, yelling at a grief. You didn't have to know anything else about that couple except for, like, his reaction to her death. Yeah. I think that the, the relationship between the two of them is played out really masterfully in the beginning because we don't have a lot of, like, exposition about how they met 
how long they've been together, all, all those different things. But one thing that's super clear is the crazy bond that exists between the two. Like you can tell, you know, Andrea Riseborough did such an amazing job with that character where we literally only have two scenes that give us any inkling into her background, which is the scene where she's walking through the woods and she finds that weird animatronic dead deer. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other scene is where she's talking about the starlings, but, you know, through kind of like the scars on her face, the, the subtlety of the looks that she gives, we get this idea that, you know, as much as she is a savior to red, we can feel that he is some sort of savior or completion to her too. Like the, the character of red has a lot of interesting foreshadowing where in the beginning when he's doing the logging, as they're riding away on the helicopter, the buddy hands him a beer. He turns it away, which, you know, to me signals some sort of sobriety. Oftentimes with like addiction and things like that, there's that whole idea that if you're trying to become sober, you shouldn't start a new relationship because you end up replacing that addiction with that person. And I don't know if that's like a healthy way, but it's certainly something romantic to put on a screen, right? And as soon as, you know, he experiences her loss, like, all of that is out the window. He's doing coke off a piece of broken glass. He's pouring <laughs> vodka down his underwear. He's trying the weird gray LSD goo and, and everything in between. Yeah. And we can really feel that like that linchpin of his life is not missing. Yeah. And I thought that um, the, the bathroom scene is incredible for so many reasons. But the, the choice of Nicolas Cage for this role is uh, amazing, was amazing, first yeah. of all. And also uh, sort of subverted expectations because in a lot of ways he is the sanest character (laughs) in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's the one with the most justified reaction to things. (laughs) And when he goes crazy, it's for a good reason, you know? (laughs) Like everyone else is just starting way up here. He doesn't get there until his fucking girlfriend is murdered. (laughs) Yeah, he certainly operates with the most logic out of anyone else in the film. Right. (laughs) I loved him in this. I thought he was so great. I mean, and I like him in general, but um, in this one, I felt like such a perfect fit because the idea that he was the most normal one and even, like, you know, as a day job, he's like a lumberjack, which is a very normal job is that a normal job it's like it just feels you know it's it's not an outrageous job he's not a cult leader yeah but it's um <laughs> even he plays that really well as this sort of like woodsy lumberjack with like a sort of a checkered past you know possible you know possible recovering alcoholic and you know trying to really live this quiet life and then but when he turns he really turns and I think that uh Nicolas Cage does such a great job of showing that descent. And I think a lot of this movie is really just like the physical manifestation of like a man falling into descent. Yeah. I think that there's several layers of like relapse to his character. There's obviously like the substance relapse, but in that scene where he's getting his crossbow back from Carruthers and Carruthers is like, what are you hunting? He's like, Jesus freaks. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that whole scene implies that like before yeah. he was a lumberjack, he may have been hunting people in a big capacity. Like, so <laughs> right. even just this, <laughs> this idea of killing people. Yeah. He gave yeah. Carruthers that weapon and like, and Carruthers already knew it was like, ah, oh, you know, like I, it's safe. Just how you left it, you know, <laughs> like, right. And then the next few lines, I was like, oh, he just explained the whole movie when he goes, uh, they were weirdo hippie types, a whole bunch of them. 
Then there was some muscle. It didn't make any sense. There were bikers, <laughs> gnarly psychos, and crazy evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciated that. <laughs> that may be the only exposition in the whole movie. Is just like here, I'm going to lay it out to you in one scene. Yeah, here it doesn't it make is. any sense. It doesn't make any sense that there are uh, there is a, a gang of uh, man eating bikers, right? In that live in the woods. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they went crazy because they uh, had a bad batch of LSD. But also sadomasochistic and started wearing like full-on b- leather body suits with spikes on it. That could happen, I guess, if you got some weird acid. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but also, does that make this an anti-drug movie? <laughs> I thought about that. Anytime there's like a camera effect of when someone is like tripping, it's it's always either like pretty well done or pretty cheesy you know you can tell when someone's actually experienced psychedelics when they they (laughs) make a scene like that and you're like oh you didn't try these (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally this one i was like this is pretty good yeah when mandy's like tied to the chair and like tripping and the way that like the trails are happening all around her but i did think this would be a terrible movie to watch while you were high Ooh, yeah wouldn't recommend that We had talked about a little bit about how like how perfect Nicolas Cage is as Red, but one interesting thing I found out when I was researching this movie because I knew I was going to be talking about it with you fine folks, is that he was originally cast to be Jeremiah Sand and not Red, and he chose to be Red and like lobbied for himself, and they actually kind of cut him from the project, and then he or I think Panos Elijah Wood and uh, Elijah's partner at Spectre Vision got together and like we are crazy to let Nicolas Cage go. Like, we should allow him to just do this part and we should rework this. I read an article about him where I think they quote Ethan Hawke talking about Nicolas Cage and how he has sort of, like, divorced the idea that acting has to be realistic. (laughs) 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 Like, divorced from that idea completely in in a way that's totally still authentic and and wonderful and, and interesting to watch. And he just felt like such a perfect... Fit not only for that movie but for the role because he is fu- he's funny to watch you know he's over the top and he's <laughs> you know he's got these like giant eyes I'm seeing because Juliet has him on, <laughs> on the background and uh, this huge smile and this sort of like booming kind of voice it's sort of inherently humorous even when he's not trying to be but I feel like this movie allowed for that and had space for that in other areas as well um in addition to his performance like for example the cheddar goblin (laughs) let's talk (laughs) about that commercial i I love the cheddar goblin love the cheddar goblin the guy that directed the cheddar goblin also directed too many cooks if you guys remember that short yeah I, oh. I, man, love a good fictional commercial, but the Cheddar Goblin was like, kind of like nod in the way of the movie to be like, hey, we're a movie. <laughs> like, we're, this is like, <laughs> we're having fun here. It's a lot of like death and blood and gore and like killer biker gangs, but let's, let's sit back a second here and watch this Cheddar Goblin. I, I love the placement of that whole thing too, because, you know, it's, it literally hits right after like that whole heart wrenching scene where Mandy is burned alive in front of, of yeah. Red. And then Red spends the whole entire evening basically mourning with a, a dagger in his side. And as he, like, you know, 
writhes and escapes from these barbed wire, uh, what do you call them, barbed wire restraints. Like, he walks in, and the first thing he sees is a strange commercial about macaroni and cheese and the fact that that hits at that point makes me feel like it's some sort of statement about like how mundane life can be regardless of like how deep and personal a tragedy you're going through like hey stuff's going to be broadcast it's going to broadcast you're going to see cheddar goblin you're going to see craft macaroni and cheese no matter what's happening yeah the rest of the world is like still moving sort of easy to get sucked into like how remote and weird this reality is but then you realize like oh no this is just like you know a mountain town (laughs) in in the u.s somewhere where there are commercials still capitalism and commerce to go (laughs) make world go round pushing how ridiculous that consumerism is because like that commercial is insane oh that's what i was gonna say own little castle The cheddar goblin just vomiting macaroni and cheese all over these children. I love that idea that Jeremiah is in what's essentially like a two, like three foot by three foot room, and he's screaming like, "Look at all that is mine! Look at what he provides!" Like you can't even see past his own face of like how wrong he is in almost every aspect of his life. Look at what he provides. A a place to squat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Again, a great like kind of parody of like male ego though, right? Absolutely. I think that that is a hundred percent. I mean, I I hate to say with certainty what metaphors are, but I almost feel 100% certain <laughs> that's what Jeremiah is supposed to and be. And then it's such a fantastic moment when uh, Red grabs him by the head and he starts begging for his life. <laughs> you know, like... I'll suck your dick, man. <laughs> I'll do it right now. And then immediately turns into like, no, you get down on your knees in front of me. Like that whole bar, like yeah. every stage of denial, right? Yeah, like yeah, bargaining, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> acceptance, <laughs> anger. Like two seconds before his head gets comically just squeezed <laughs> until it pops. <laughs> Almost grossly categorized or kind of punctuated with Nicholas K. I mean, Red seemingly having an orgasm at that point, yeah, but like kind of representing moment. I think that re- <laughs> represents our release for the, like as the audience of like, Oh, thank God he's finally like achieved what he needed to, but it got a little sexual kind of like, eh, Hey man, whatever works for you works for you. I'm not here to yucky yum, but it definitely read as like that dude just came. <laughs> it really did. Uh, I think there was a lot of little layers of kind of psychosexual, right? Like across, which mm-hmm. I think is also part of every cult story. I feel like I can't watch a cult documentary without them at some point getting to the weird sex stuff. <laughs> like it's every yeah. cult. Every cult has weird sex stuff. The scene where Jeremiah has Mandy tied up and he's playing the song for her when she's laughing at him and he's getting really angry, but he's sort of the camera pans up to him and it sort of looks like he's masturbating while he's yelling at her a little bit, um, which is, a, I think, a yeah. mirror oh, image. Yes, he to, was, for okay, sure. cool. I was just, okay. I was like, I was just being like shy. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> I didn't mean to walk in on you doing that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that ties back into the male ego thing of like, he just lost all the power he thought that he had. So he's like trying to feebly take it back by like owning his own orgasm or like still getting what he wanted from her even though he's the one performing. I, it's so gross that that <laughs> is even the thought, but I think that's definitely what's behind it. Like, that dude's jerking off in that scene, and it is, it's upsetting. Oh, right. yeah. Confirmed. 
glad <laughs> glad well, we that cleared that up that's my only question <laughs> for this whole thing <laughs> that's what you came in here with circled in red that you needed to find out was we? okay <laughs> people get into the cult you know like i have a fan theory yeah. <laughs> share I please think, so there are there's four men who look distinctly related in my opinion mm, like the okay. and the, all the blonde guys with the mullets and the big noses mm-hmm. they all they all seem to have like some sort of relation to each other and i think that's more of like a, either jeremiah is part of their family or he's convinced the entire family to follow him where like maybe jeremiah is the best looking one in that family mm. and therefore clearly touched by god uh and spoken to by god and then the rest of that is just like ancillary mountain people that they've convinced to pull in either through with their use of the chemist which by the way that character the chemist whew, yeah. love that dude's performance so yeah. good but I love that that is the crux of like Jeremiah's powers that Jeremiah thinks his powers, that he is Jesus or, or God himself. Whereas most of those people are there because they're convinced, coerced or attracted to the notion of this LSD that he's able to procure from the chemist, even all the way down to the black skull motorcycle gang. You know, they probably started doing business with him because of the, the acid. He saw that as a way to, influenced them in some way and kept convincing the chemist to make something more powerful and then they end up with the gray goo which i would like to try the gray goo sometime in my <laughs> life maybe not an entire bottle of it but you know a little tongue full like red does uh halfway through <laughs> after killing fuck pig i'd like to give that a shot yeah there's there was there. a lot that it's, happened yeah. in that moment that <laughs> that stuff touched his tongue Anything that makes you see your own face melt is like, all right, I'll, yeah, I'll give that one shot for at sure. Least once, at least once. Why not? Why yeah. not? There were so many good campy 80s style face melting, eyes popping out of people's heads. Like that stuff I just made me so happy. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Same. Just full of joy. You never see that stuff with the combination of like really artful camera work, right? Yes. Like generally mm-hmm. they're in a scene where someone's head pops off of their eye or in a movie where someone's head pops off or their eyes pop out. You don't have a lot of stuff where like the DP decides to shoot through several layers of glass to get a certain type of like light bokeh. Right. Whereas that's all over this movie. And yes. I think that's one of the things I love about this movie is that it is stuff that is generally considered pretty lowbrow approached the same way that a very serious art project would be approached where it's like, yeah, that's a decapitation and a very simple revenge drug fuel kind of like almost video game storyline. But that's not the point. The point is we're making a film and film is a high art form. And even though we're representing like, you know, bikers and leather and heads getting chopped off and all this kind of weird stuff doesn't mean that we have to shoot it. Like we don't have any money or support or artistic vision or, or time on it. It's like, that's that is 100 percent my jam like anyone that approaches stuff like lowbrow concepts with highbrow technique that's where i'm fucking like at my happy place i agree so hard same you could also see all of the visual inspirations Mm -hmm. um from like you know sort of the kubrickian type things uh sort of you know 80s slasher movie vibes but also Mm -hmm. like jodorowsky kind of like weirdness you know um, yeah. and big epic like landscapes 
like, mm-hmm. um, while also, like, staying within the woods and the confines of this. And truly, the lighting really fucking won, won me over so much. And such thoughtful lighting. I believe yes. the cinematographer was uh, Ben Loeb. That is his name. Uh, he nailed it. Killed it. Um, it. There were I. We should go through and list the genres and and homages that we noticed because there were so many. There was the campy '80s horror stuff. There was the like sort of like Mad Max dystopian mm-hmm. biker gang, you know, craziness. Um, I thought that the first half of the movie was very David Lynchian. Um, a lot of slow shots moving in on people while they. Uh, tell stories in a detached style with music playing, like <laughs> like string music playing <laughs> yeah, in the background. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like very reminiscent of Twin Peaks and and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and effectively romantic too. Like that. Yeah. The whole reason the movie works is that we buy the initial like premise that this was a really deep love, and you can't get yeah. that without getting into romantic ter- territory. Like. So many relationships in horror movies you just don't buy. You're just like, yeah, you're there for the day and or however long the shoot is. But this almost felt like we dropped in on a very loving relationship and we don't need any context other than kind of like the strength of that bond. That doesn't come with making a horror movie, right? Like right. Panos totally yeah. went into the like, hey, shoot it in a way that feels romantic and, you know, conveys that even if I haven't expressly written um, any backstory totally and 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 their backstory or their bond is very much explained by just the circumstances of their relationship of that of them just living in the woods alone yeah. together of her sort of being this like kind of off-kilter metal loving artist <laughs> and him being this um you know ex-addict logger like you can just tell that maybe they don't fit in with the rest of society and that they it's just like a really lovely thing that they found each other yeah Yeah. even though it's not explained in dialogue you know well even like the long scene in the beginning where mandy is telling the story uh but she's just like laying you know they're just like laying down with each other and that's such a like a sweet intimate moment even though that story is like bonkers but it (laughs) that closeness (laughs) is so evident you know and i love those kinds of subtle scenes like that where you can show so much just by having like two people kind of like in a soft embrace and you can see like how sensitive they are to each other and sort of her willingness to sort of tell this like deep scary story about her like childhood trauma I mean he did that in what five minutes showed in a relationship it was like that and then the scene where they talk about their favorite planets oh yeah yeah which is a good marvel reference there was the heavy metal animation, which mm-hmm. was very cool. And I like that it dipped into that in a really also what I thought was a pretty artful way with, without it being too much extra sensory, you know, just because there's already so much going on and there's animation. It, it's almost like you wonder if the movie can work without that animation. but it, And I, I would say that it probably could work without those animated scenes. But I think that those animated scenes give us more reference into kind of like the fantastic elements. So, you know, at the the final scene of the movie where he's basically driving out of the woods and we pan up and we see several planets and, like, rock structures yeah. that don't exist in the world, yeah. that wouldn't work, I don't think, without kind of, like, setting up these references with, like, it's more fantastic, there's more to this area than it just being, you know, like, Portland or Pacific Northwest. It's It could exist in several different kind of, like, timelines or, or spaces 
that are more fantastic, which I think gives the movie license for acid that turns bikers into, you know, <laughs> rape-hungry demons. Right. And <laughs> all these kind of other things that you need a little bit of buy-in if you're trying to watch it logically. But yeah. I think that the whole time you're watching the movie, the movie's telling you, like, you don't have to take this logically, like, feel me, feel the movie totally. more than think about me. I think it sets it sets Mandy up as an artist, too, which kind of, yeah. like, makes sense that Red is seeing her as her art, kind of, yeah. in that moment. That's a great point, Robin. Well, and if art's, like, kind of one of her defining character traits or defining traits to him, like, memorializing her in his brain as art is a pretty powerful statement in and of itself. I love that, Robin. I didn't even make that connection <laughs> or think about I that. I didn't now really like until so just now, happy. either. Yeah, <laughs> but, like, how heartbreaking is it then when he's driving away at the end and just having these memories of, like, seeing her in a bar, I guess? Um, yeah, I think yeah. that was supposed to be, like, the first time that he saw her. The first time like, that they met, yeah. A reference to when he's talking about how that's his favorite shirt, when which also was very funny when... Um, yes. Yeah, when he's, like, <laughs> You ripped my shirt? shirt. Yeah. <laughs> but I was also like, who wears their favorite shirt when they're <laughs> out to, on a revenge mission? <laughs> like, you know it's going to get ruined. <laughs> <laughs> I think we would be remiss if we just didn't like go through every death that happened <laughs> and talk about <laughs> how yeah. wonderful it is. That's number one, go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember them in order, but the one that I uh, loved so very much was uh, pulling, first of all, the chainsaw fight. <laughs> yes. With the longest chainsaw known to man <laughs> that the guy pulls out. I thought that that was a great visual gag as he's pulling it out and it gets longer and longer. It just like nest doesn't end. <laughs> so that is such a good gag. And then when he fucking pulls him down onto it and he's just yes. lying there getting torn to bits by the chainsaw. <laughs> I was just like, hell yeah. <laughs> I also like the general kind of like, there's something very, very, very classic horror movie about it, right? Yeah. Totally. But like dialed up several notches. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, the chainsaw fight is amazing. Um, I read somewhere that the, both the chainsaw fight and then the axe fight that he has um, in kind of like that same area both of those, they only had a single night to shoot, which normally on like a big budget shoot, some kind of big action scene with lots of dangerous weapons would be like multiple nights, multiple right. days. Right. So they, they had to be like really precise with the, um, you know, both in the way that they shot it and with like the choreography. And I, I'm always curious about that stuff because I didn't feel like that was rushed choreography. I felt like it was dangerous, dangerous situation. It felt like people were going at each other hard. It didn't feel like they were pulling chainsaw hits, you know, anything right, like that. Right. So just knowing that they shot that with basically, you know, over an evening, it's like, God dang, that is even more impressive. I think I read too that they shot the whole movie in 29 days or something in the woods of Belgium. Yep. Whoa, really? Yeah. Um, Mandy's death was pretty tough. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. I mean, being burned alive is probably one of the worst ways to go, right? Yeah. I would assume. And <laughs> and obviously the parallel with the story that she had just told, you know? Yeah. I, I Every time I see that scene, I think about Red's perspective of that because before that, he's knocked out. And I think it's implied that he's essentially out until Jeremiah wakes him up and Jeremiah has decided that 
his plan's not going to work and he needs to cleanse Mandy with fire. So from Red's perspective, dudes broke into his house. He was knocked out. He wakes up tied up with barbed wire and some guy is in his face talking about God and being the second coming of Jesus and the mistakes Jesus made. And he doesn't even have any real confirmation that it was Mandy, even though like it makes sense that that was Mandy within that bag. But the idea of just like waking up and someone having your lover and just being like, I am, you know, Jesus' mistake was that he didn't have any, he didn't put a sacrifice in his stead and you get stabbed. And just like the idea of like, who the fuck are you, man? Like, what are you trying to tell me, crazy man? (laughs) Any, any other deaths that that stood out to you guys? Fuck pig, because I don't know how he died. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Just gets dragged away. Yeah. Fuck pig was the, um, was he the, okay, so what was the, the black skull biker? that had the knife for a crotch um, that was watching porn and doing coke. Because I'm super unclear of how he actually dies. I feel like it has to relate to his, his knife crotch, but I, I don't know exactly what killed him other than, like, Nick Cage, or he falls on red. We see the knife plunge into something that looks either like the floor or flesh, and yeah. then he vomits blood all over red. So I'm assuming that he, like tucked it up and stabbed I thought him. that it was a, a throat situation because there was so much blood. Like, maybe it slid his throat and he lifted him up and... Yeah. Oh, that's right, because Red was carrying a box cutter. He's you know, yes. bringing a box cutter to a machine gun fight <laughs> <laughs> these bikers. <laughs> um, uh, one of the other deaths that I loved was the uh, the bald guy who just gets the steak through the mouth. <laughs> oh! Yeah, that was like... And because like he's like shit talking right up to that, and then like right in the mm-hmm. mouth, and that's so uncomfortable. That's so uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable to watch. And then like, <laughs> but he's still like alive when it's in his mouth. And then just like the way that Red pauses for a second, and then like fucking like right into his brain. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> so good. The scene earlier of him just. Uh, putting the window down and up and down and up and, down, and just like annoying the shit out of the other cold guy. <laughs> it's hilarious. And also justified his death because that was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need because he really doesn't get his hands too dirty in, in the stuff that we right. see, but we do know that he's still a And you know, too, when he's cleaning that car and he's waxed, he's like d- doing the most to make sure it's pristine, that he, that is the moment that he is going to die and that there's going to be a lot of blood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can clean anything in a horror movie and expect it to stay clean <laughs> by the end of the game. End of the That's movie. another good trope. <laughs> Don't clean yeah. anything in a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what they're doing in Scream 5. It's going to be like set in a hoarder house. So <laughs> <laughs> we award Mandy some badges? Yes. Let's do it. Absolutely. I'm ready. I'm ready. So yeah, what do you got? Uh, my first badge is the... <laughs> is the... Um, despite all his rage, he is still just Nicolas Cage. Badge... <laughs> to <laughs> Nicolas Cage for continuing to be the most Nicolas Cage in every movie. And even though he embodies his character so, so well, he's still like Nicolas Cage. And I love him for that. Well, this is just a, maybe my favorite prop was the axe that he forged. Oh, man. Yes. That fucking Which crazy in battle and of itself, <laughs> In and of itself, a metal reference because it's the T from the Celtic Frost logo. Yes. That as a metalhead uh. was just like, so sick. <laughs> oh, I guess Red's also a fucking 
metal worker. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, just like a just, badass. He's a real yeah. renaissance man. Just fucking very handy. Very, very handy. Also a, a blacksmith. <laughs> He's really got the medieval like uh, medieval jobs covered. He can do logging. He can blacksmith. I think all it's missing is we need to see him like work on a car or something, and then we could be like, "Yep, he's got the full gamut of like (laughs) '80s man stuff." (laughs) There should I think I don't know why there aren't more chainsaw duels. Why so good? If you can have one chainsaw in a movie, why not have two? Uh, This is a badge I've given out before, but I feel like I have to keep giving it out because it's just it just keeps happening. But it's the housekeeping badge. (laughs) For just like fucking so much blood, so much blood in that biker house. Someone's got to take care of that, man. Not to mention like all the fucking Chinese food containers. That place was a mess. Come on, man. Yeah, drop the gray goo for five seconds. Just clean the fuck up. Come on, guys. You guys and they're are... leaving dead bodies. Seriously. <laughs> Human <get> sex dolls. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, what do you got for badges? Uh, the first badge I have is the double vision badge, and that is awarded to the uh, the LSD trip scenes for most realistic trailers I think I've seen um, on film. Oftentimes it's a cheesy effect, but mm-hmm. they, some a lot of love went into making those, and, and someone very familiar with the, uh, the substance helped out with that. Um, the second is a Epitaph Barrett badge, and I believe that a perfect thing to put on a tombstone would be what are you hunting jesus freaks <laughs> <laughs> i also like the line after that when he go when uh when he goes um i don't think they're in season man <laughs> <laughs> you know and i my third merit badge that i just thought up is um the must make a prequel merit badge and mm. i want to know the story behind carruthers and i want that to know would be an excellent prequel. what's going Good on character i have three badges to award the first is the Princess Bride badge. Hear me out. <laughs> 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 because I'm awarding this badge because Mandy, like the Princess Bride, is simultaneously a fantastic homage to several genres while also being a successful entrant into those genres and that genre. I buy it. I buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. I think you were right. My second badge is the Welder of the Week badge because who knew (laughs) that Nick Cage could just forge a battle axe in the middle of the movie (laughs) in like a really long kind of sequence? (laughs) That's just him, yeah, going to town. Really perfectly polished and just like a great form. Yeah. Seems like it has a good weight where it needs to be. And it did its job. (laughs) Yeah. Very functional. Balanced. Yes. Very very functional. He could have just made like a knife or he could have bought an axe. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You, or you think like as a logger, That's he would have had some <laughs> lying around. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, th- that's a scene that they cut where he's looking at like his wide selection of, like, <laughs> cutting it's like none of like, these will do <laughs> mm, no these don't represent my rage right I need something custom for this job um, and then my last badge is the gritty go home badge because the cheddar <laughs> goblin is the mascot of this decade <laughs> and gritty better get the fuck out of here let's make that happen Can, should we start a petition <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know that the gritty Twitter account is actually now going to yell at you for, uh, for putting that out. You know what? Here. I hope so. Bring it on, gritty. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I'm a Cheddar Goblin girl. Maybe we can get girl. the Cheddar Goblin account. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I need a shirt. We need to make shirts with the Poor Cheddar, cheddar Goblin, goblin, goblin girl. And it's just vomiting, vomiting mac and cheese. Just vomiting mac and cheese. Which, like, honestly did not look all that unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I would get vomited on by Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will t- gladly collaborate with Bunk 237 to make uh, Cheddar Goblin Girls. T-shirts. I would wear it every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, Justin, do you have anything to plug? Thank you for the opportunity. So, as the world's foremost researcher of the paranormal entity known as Axe Slasher, we have new findings that will be released to the world on October 31st. Uh, As you may know, we spend a lot of time with EVP boxes and parabolic microphones up on Mount Bailey, and over time we've discovered these separate signals that we capture when overlaid together make a heavy metal sound. There's a new album coming out October 31st uh, by Axe Slasher named Dead Alive, which is a live album recorded December 7th, 2019 at the Bluebird Theater, opening for Violence and Havoc. You can score a copy of the album itself. You can get a version that has a poster screen printed from the night that the show went on, or the newest version that is exclusively being announced here. If you go to sauceleopard.com, you can get a version of the album that comes with a bottle of Ask Gasher hot sauce, which is the Axe Slasher official hot sauce. That's incredible. AxeSlasher.bandcamp.com, AxeSlasher.com, SauceLeopard.com. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a fun Thank time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bunk 237, a horror movie podcast, stars Yet Wen and Robin Zlotnick as the final girls of Bunk 237, and Chris Charpentier as camp director Chris. The show is produced by me, Shane Segrit. Our theme song is written and performed by Dan Zlotnick, and our outro music is written and performed by Talene Kali. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and it may be featured on an upcoming episode. Have a suggestion for a movie? Then follow us on Instagram at Bunk237Pod and Twitter at Bunk237. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are downloaded.